This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. I was walking around this morning, and uh, there's a little girl, quite talkative. I won't mention her name. And she said, uh, she found out I was preaching. And she said, oh, that's great. We won't have somebody yelling during the sermon. So I couldn't make her any promises, but I thought it was kind of funny. So I want to start off today with a, a seemingly simple question for all of us. Who is Jesus? I want you to think about that question for a minute. How would you answer that? Let's say your neighbor or not, or even a stranger asked you, who is Jesus? A recent study from the Barner Group tells us that Christians give four typical answers. And you'll, you'll see them up there. He is a real person. He is sinless. He is God. And he is the way to heaven. Those are all good answers, right? So how'd you do? Probably got most, if not all of those. What I want us to do, though, is go back about 2,000 years to some of Paul's answers to the question, who is Jesus? And you see in our text today, which we'll read in a minute, Paul says that Jesus is the righteousness of God. The one who justifies, one who redeems, and is a propitiation. Both lists are obviously true, yet obviously they're quite different from one another. So I think one way that we can see the difference between the two lists is by using the Andy Griffith Show. So not too long ago, I was on this huge Andy Griffith Show kick. It was on TV land, and I would come home and watch it, and Lisa and I would watch it. Now, my favorite episodes were the black and white ones. When they got to the color ones, I didn't like those so much. I was used to the uh, Andy, Barney, Floyd, Aunt B, Opie, all being in black and white. I didn't really know that the last few seasons were filmed in color. So who knew that... The police station had green walls. I don't know. It was news to me. Who knew that Andy's car was blue? A beautiful blue color. And who knew that Opie's hair was red? There he is, right? So I think the uh, first list of answers, the modern list, is our black and white Jesus. It's the one we know. It's what we're used to seeing and saying. It's the black and white Aunt B. The 2,000-year-old list from Paul is the color version of Jesus. And it's kind of strange. Let's be honest. And it's this Jesus, Paul's color HD, vibrant Jesus, that I want to show us today. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text. Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts 
and minds to receive your word. That you would challenge us with it. That you would transform us by it. And as we receive it, may it kill off all the ways we might tolerate our ignorance of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I got two sections of text from Romans today. Let's do the first one. It's Romans 3, 9 through 12. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. In Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. All right, sometimes it's hard to know where to start when you get to some difficult verses. So if you know me, it shouldn't come as a surprise that I think a golf analogy might help us here. So when I play a difficult golf course, I like to look at a yardage book. It's a little booklet that has a bird's eye view of each hole. And the yardage book shows if the hole is straight or if it has a dog leg left or right or where the sand traps are and the water hazards, all good things to know. And once I understand the bird's eye view of the hole, I have a much better chance of playing the hole well. And so I think it's going to be helpful for us today to think of our two sets of texts, our verses, as two golf holes. Okay? The first golf hole is verses 9 through 12, and the second set of verses, 21 through 25, is our second golf hole. Right? So what's the bird's eye view of each of those two holes? It's pretty simple. The first hole is that we are not right with God. Right? And we'll talk about that. The second hole is this. Jesus is how we are made right with God. All right? So let's start with the first hole. The, the hole's ominously named, we are not right with God. Let's look at that text again. 3, 9 through 12. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So why are we not right with God? That's what Paul means when he says none is righteous in verse 10, that we're not right with God. Well, we aren't right with God because he says in verse 10, we are under sin. So we need to tease that out just a little bit, what it means to be under sin. Now he tells us that it consists of certain actions towards God, 
Right? Verse 11 says no one understands. Verse 11 says no one seeks God. Verse 12 says all have turned aside. Okay? And then those actions are symptomatic of a certain moral standing we have before God. Okay? Verse 12, we have become worthless. And in verse 12, no one does good, not even one. So taken together, our actions on our moral standing describe those who live under sin, those who are not right with God. But let's dive a little deeper into what that means, and we're going to find out it is so much more than just acts of sin, right? just sinning. And it's even more than our moral standing before God. To be under sin, from Paul's perspective, means to live under the power and authority of sin. Douglas Moo, I like what he says. He says it means this. He says Paul's trying to tell us this. We are helpless pawns under sin's power. I want you to think about that for a minute. All right? That is a huge statement. We are helpless pawns under sin's power. What does it mean to be helpless pawns under sin's power, under its authority? Because that's our problem. It means we serve sin's purposes. Okay? It means sin is the controlling factor in our lives. It means, and this is huge... We are under sin's ownership. And we're helpless to do anything about it. So the heart of not being right with God, our first hole, is a question of not just what you do or don't do, which is how we are so prone to think, but of who owns you. Whose power do you live and die under? Whose purposes do you serve? See, sometimes we think life is so much about us that we answer all those questions self-centeredly. But there's a whole lot more going on out there. So in anyone who has not been made right with God through Jesus Christ is under sin, owned by sin. Not a good place to be. You can be sitting in this pew today and be owned by sin. So a natural response to this truth that Paul is teaching us is that, okay, wait a minute, I'm not that bad a person. In fact, I'm a good person. Trust me on that, I'm a good person. Uh, I've never murdered anyone. I don't steal. In fact, I help the needy more than my Christian neighbor because I see what he does and believe me, it's no good. And I'm certainly no Hitler, so I'm a good person. So Paul wants you to know something. He wants us to know something. We are owned by sin. So any points that we think we are accruing to our favor aren't our points to accrue. They're sins. They're owned by sin. Sin uses them for its purposes, right? Not for God's purposes. Sin has claim on all of that stuff that you think you're doing so well. But it's worse than that, this under sin stuff. Because 
It's to God that you are to compare yourself to. Not your neighbor, and certainly not Hitler, but to God. And in such a comparison, you always lose. You always fall short, he's about to say, of God's glory. God is holy, and you are not. That's our problem. Now, some of us might point out, and it's a good thing to perceive, really, that Christians can be just as bad as unbelievers. They commit adultery. They divorce. They act one way in church and another way at home. Right? That's why I don't go to church because they're all hypocrites. Okay. Well, sadly, this is true, right? We know Christians that do this. We all sin. But there's, and this is so important, there's one huge difference, right, between the sin of the Christian, the one made right with God, and the sin of the unbeliever, the one who's not right with God. So we just saw that the unbeliever lives under the power and authority of sin. And in that place, when you live there, right, your sin, the sin of the unbeliever, is never put right. The only solution is to come under God's wrath when you're in that place as an unbeliever. But the Christian lives life under the ownership and saving power of God. Amen? Amen. Romans 6, 6. Right? You're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. And in that place, the sin of the believer is put right. It's put right by Jesus Christ. Okay? So it's not our actions that make us different. It's who owns us that makes us different. So a question for you today is, who owns you? God and His righteousness are sin. All right, so now let's take a look at the second hole, which is verses 21 through 25. We finished the first hole, the under sin hole. So now we're going to take a look at the second hole named, How Jesus Makes Us Right with God, which is good to know, given what we've just talked about. So, and I've got to tell you, this is where we're going to see that HD vibrant color Jesus, right? Not the black and white Aunt Opie, but the color one, okay? And this still blows me away the more I learn about Paul's color Jesus. I mean, it is just so rich, it's so deep, and this Jesus is huge. So let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now, let me stop there just for a second. He has spent the last two-plus chapters describing the condition of humanity. And it's not good. Okay? Have you ever known one of those people that gives you a list of problems but never provides a solution? That is not Paul. He gives you that, all those problems, and then he comes to this verse, one of the best two words in the New Testament. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so back to the golf thing again. All right. When, you, when, I play a, uh, when a pro plays a uh, difficult uh, golf hole, 
Sometimes the yardage book's not enough, right? So they actually get with their caddy, that's the guy that carries the clubs, and they walk the hole before the tournament begins. And they're usually looking for a few things, and one very important thing to look for is the landing area off of the tee. That's where you hit your ball when you hit it off the tee. They want to hit it in a certain spot, right? Because when you do that, it gives them the best chance to, to master the hole. And so if they miss that, they're going to mess up the whole hole. It's a lost cause. And so verses 21 and 22 up there are the landing area for our second hole. And the most important thing about that landing area is that is this. It is that Jesus is the righteousness of God. We have to know this about our second hole to play the hole well. It's fundamental. Jesus is the righteousness of God. So what does Paul mean when he teaches us that? What does he mean when he says Jesus is the righteousness of God? N.T. Right? Wright says this. I really like this. He says, Jesus, this is what Paul means. Jesus is the means by which the Creator God will rescue the whole world from evil, corruption, and death. Right? That's pretty big. I like that. I think you should too, right? So think of it like this. We're under sin... Okay, we've just, that was the first hole. We got that. That's scary stuff. And Jesus' actions, his saving activity, are the way God can put us right. Okay? We're not right with God. We need to be put right with God. Jesus' saving activity can do that. Right? So when we think about Jesus as the righteousness of God, we can, kind of a simple way to think of it is, is that it refers to the saving activity of Jesus that makes people right with God. Simple enough. Okay? That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's getting at. All right? But he's not done yet, obviously, because that's too simple for Paul. Um, he wants to notice something about the saving activity. Okay? It's radical, and it's connected to the Old Testament. So let's see how this plays out. He tells us that God's righteousness has been manifested, in verse 21, in Jesus. Well, that's, that means it's been revealed. It's appeared. John 1.1 1, 1 speaks of that, right? The flesh, the Word became flesh. Okay? Um, that right there is a hugely radical claim in the context of Paul's Judaism. Right? Why? Because it's completely unexpected. And it's at odds with tradition. All right, what am I talking about? So the average Jew in Paul's day, not all of them, but most of them, thought this. Okay, they understood that you could not be right with God. And then they had this idea of what it took to be right with God, and it was this. Uh, you're made right with God by obedience to the law. Right? That's legalism. Okay? We're made right with God through circumcision, right? And you're made right with God by being God's chosen people. All those things are wrapped up together. And that is how they thought that the God of the Old Testament made you right in His sight. Those three things. Obedience, circumcision, being God's chosen people. But Paul is saying that, in fact, that is not how it happens. Not at all. Right away, 
we're confronted with the fact that our traditions sometimes are wrong. <laughs> we cannot forget that. All right? The way we are made right with God, he says in verse 21, is apart from the law. Right? Their wires are fritzing. They don't understand this at all when they hear this. It's Jesus' saving activity that makes people right with God, not the law. All right? So, nobody is made right with God because of their behavior, right? their tradition, or their privilege. It almost seems you don't have much to do with how you're made right with God at all, doesn't it? Amen for that. So all of this stuff would have been scandalous for them to hear, the average Jew that Paul was writing to in Romans. From their perspective, right, he just hit the ball out of bounds. He didn't find the landing area. He's lost his ball and he's out of the hole. But Paul is in the dead center of the fairway. When you, I don't know how many of you are golfers, but when they, uh, there's a guy named Ian Banker Finch, and when he... Um, is working a tournament, he always says when a guy hits a good shot off the tee that they hit it in the mayor's office. Jesus is in the mayor's office for Paul. He's it. So Paul's in the mayor's office when he's making this claim. So we need to see why, right? He doesn't just say you're wrong. He tells them why they're wrong. And in verse 21, he says, okay, what I just said is true, and I'm going to tell you why, because Paul says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. To Jesus' righteousness. All right. So what does he mean by that? That's a pretty bold claim. All right. So the law, right? Most of us know is referring to what? The first five books of the Old Testament. So let's look at one of those, Genesis, and see an example. It's Genesis 12:7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring, I will give this land." All right. That verse describes the covenant that God made with. Abram, a promise, right, to bring him an offspring. We're sitting here as believers, by the way, because of this promise, those of you that are. You need to know that. Okay? All right, so then we can jump to Genesis 22, and God, referring back to that promise, says this, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So all of humanity, the nations, will be blessed from this offspring. All right, so this makes sense, right? Uh, through Abraham will come an offspring that will bless the nations. All right? Most people are going to think, oh, that's Isaac. All right? So we've got to find out how does that bear witness to what Paul just said, that the Old Testament actually speaks of Jesus as God's righteousness. Well, because in Galatians 3.16, Paul tells us that the promised offspring is Jesus. Right? So this bears witness to Jesus because blessing the nations is part of God's saving activity, right? His righteousness to put things right. And guess who's doing the blessing? Jesus. That's what Paul just said. That is Jesus in Genesis 12. That's the answer to that covenant, that promise with Abram. Right? So that's why Paul can argue that the Old Testament speaks of the righteousness of Jesus. Right there, Genesis 12. And that's just one of many, many, many examples. Okay, so open your eyelids back up. 
Because whatever you take away from Jesus' connection to the Old Testament, I at least want you to remember this. We can never sever Jesus from the Old Testament. You just can't do it, right? Jesus' significance for Paul finds part of its fullest expression when he is understood in light of God's work in the Old Testament. If you ask, how did Paul speak the gospel? The answer is always using the Old Testament. Just go to Acts 13, I believe it is. An entire sermon from the Old Testament. All right? Citing his favorite Old Testament passages. Psalm 16. It speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 110. that speaks about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. For Paul, no Old Testament no Jesus. This would not make any sense. All right, so please just remember that. All right, that's part of Paul's HD color Jesus, by the way, that connection to the Old Testament. So having dealt with this radical way that God puts us right through Jesus, Paul in 21, verse 21, says that we're connected to Jesus through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, we're connected to that righteousness. All right, so Jesus is how God makes us right with him, but we have to be connected to that through faith. So in other words, this is real simple. We have to believe that Jesus is who Paul says he is. And we have to believe that we are who Paul says we are. So Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's Messiah. He's killed on a cross. And he's risen from the dead. Do you believe that? And then we have to believe that why is that so important? Because we are not right with God. We are under sin. And we need to be connected to that. The only way to be freed from our default position in life, which is under sin, is to be joined to that through faith in Christ. That's it. It's our only hope. Okay, so... That's the landing area. Jesus is the righteousness of God of our second hole. Now we've got to go to the green. Let's make our way up to the green. It's just verses 22 through 25, right? And this green, by the way, is a beast. It's like a huge green with a lot of curves. It's real fast. It's like a putt-putt green if you ever played one of those. All right, so let's read 22 through 25. For, for there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Okay, so in case we forgot that under sin stuff from the second hole, uh, Paul wants to remind us of that that we're under the ownership of sin. He says, everyone falls short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile is what he's talking about. So God's standard, that glorious standard, is unattainable when you're under sin. It just can't be done. All right? All right, and then he moves on to three of Jesus' saving activities, three expressions of Jesus' righteousness that actually make us right with God. All right? And those three are, 
uh, justification by his grace, propitiation by his blood, and redemption in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I'm a little quirky. Uh, It helps me to understand Paul sometimes by turning his nouns into verbs. So I think of these as ways that we are righteous by Jesus. How are we put right with God? We're righteous by Jesus. And he gives us three ways that God does that through Jesus. So let's just talk about them. First one, justification. Okay, we've heard this, I think. We've certainly heard the word. God takes our sin and puts it on Jesus. And God takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it on us. That's justification. We've been joined to God's righteousness through Jesus. We're now counted as right before God. When we stand in judgment before God, he can say to us, not guilty, because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees us. That's justification. But this is huge. What happens, and this is, again, all part of Paul's HD color Jesus, right? The one that is strange. What happens to our sin? Where'd it go? If he, he put it on Jesus, so what happened to it? Because right? we're not dealing with make-believe stuff here. It just can't disappear. Right? That wouldn't do anybody any good. That, mean, that would mean this whole thing is fiction. So something has to be done with it. And that's where propitiation comes in. Right? The sin that Jesus took upon himself to justify us has to be dealt with. It has to be judged and condemned. It has to come under God's holy wrath. God has to destroy it. Right? And so when Paul says Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, in verse 25, he's telling us that Jesus bore the wrath of God that was poured out in judgment for our sins. Man, that's serious stuff. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself for our sin. That's propitiation. And to get a glimpse of how difficult that was for Jesus to do, we only need to look at Matthew 26. He has a conversation with the Father about propitiation, that saving activity of God that helps make us right before God. He says this, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup, in verse 39, is a reference back to Isaiah 51.17. That cup contains the wrath of God. And Jesus drank it. On our behalf. He took it on himself on our behalf. Alright, so what about redemption? Redemption, okay, is how we are purchased out of the slavery and ownership and power of sin. All that under sin stuff that we're enslaved to. Redemption is how we are bought out of that by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that place, our sins are forgiven. Ephesians 1 does a real good job, Paul does, with telling us exactly what it means. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So that's redemption. Right? So we're not right with God. Jesus is how we're made right with God. And his righteousness is expressed in three activities that put us right with God. Justification, propitiation, and redemption. Easy enough, right? Sure. All right, so I want to finish today where we started with the question, who is Jesus? So he, he is a real person, like we said at the beginning. Right? He's sinless. He certainly is God. And he's the way to heaven. And I would have to add also resurrection. Right? But remember, you saw at the beginning, Mayberry's jail had green walls and Opie had red hair. So what does Paul tell us who Jesus is in color? Jesus is the righteousness of God. Jesus is how we are made right with God. Jesus is God's saving activity for humanity. He is God's righteousness personified. That's amazing. The righteousness of God expressed in the Old Testament through covenant and promise is now personified in Jesus Christ. He is the fullest expression of God's Old Testament promise keeping. That's Jesus. To me, that's awesome stuff. I mean, that makes me a little excited, but I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of weird. So who is Jesus? He's the righteousness of God that justifies, that propitiates, that redeems. Right? So when you're joined to Jesus through faith, it's so much bigger than how you get saved or how you go to heaven. As important as they are. You actually become part of God's saving activity to put all of creation right. You become part of that story. That means it's not about you. It's about you being joined to what God is doing in creation. Man, what a load off. It's not about me. Amen. I just get to participate and what God is doing through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's awesome. How do you do that? Well, go tell people what we've just learned. You're under sin, and Jesus can bring you out from under sin. Right? That's how you can participate. And it's even cooler than this. You actually become part, when you're joined to Jesus, of the fulfillment of a 3,500-year-old promise that God made to Abram when he called him out into the promised land. You are joined to that promise. You become a part of how God blesses the nations. We're about to do that later in the service when we're going to pray for those going to the Philippines. What are we doing? We're participating in that covenant that God made with Abram 3,500 years ago. We're doing it right here, right now, because we are joined to Jesus. That's pretty cool. You know, it's funny, I was uh, worrying the other day about something, I don't know what, and it was right after I'd worked on this part of the sermon, and it occurred to me, 
what in the world am I doing? Right? If Jesus does all that he's doing, as Paul's describing it here, and we're joined to that, we're participating with him in all that he's doing, I think he's got my little life under control. Right? And praise God for that. Because Paul's HD color Jesus, the one he wants trying to tell us about this morning, is bigger than our worries. Right? He's bigger than our questions. He's bigger than our doubts. Bring them to him. Right? He can handle all of them. So I want to close with three questions for us. Are you part of what God is doing to put creation right? Now, for the unbeliever, that means, are you still under sin? Or are you ready to be joined to Jesus? And for the believer, that means, are you speaking the gospel? Second question, are you part of what God has been doing for the last 3,500 years? Are you participating in that promise, in the fulfillment of that promise? And lastly, are you joined to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith? So that you can be removed out from under the power of sin and moved underneath the grace and righteousness of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that those of us who are joined to Jesus through faith might recognize the enormity of the grace in which we live because of the saving activity of your Son. And I pray that those who are not joined to Jesus through faith would be drawn to do so. May they recognize that they are under sin, owned by sin, and in desperate need to be made right with you through Jesus Christ and all of his saving activity. So Lord, we just want to rejoice in what your son has done and what he's doing. And we are so grateful that we can be joined to your work in Christ to put all of creation right. And so we just wait longingly and expectantly for the return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all that he has set out to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. 
You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.